This podcast is for investment professionals only. This is an Investor's Guide to China, a new podcast from Fidelity International. I'm Paris Anand, Head of Asset Management in Asia-Pacific, and I'll be taking you deep into China's economy, what makes the country tick, the areas that are most exciting, and the ones to avoid. Fidelity has built up decades of experience in China. In each episode, I'll bring you Fidelity's portfolio managers, research analysts, and other specialists who cover the market and can share with you their expertise. The past year has been historic for Chinese capital markets. Company share and bonds have stepped into the international spotlight, included on global indices for the first time. But how open is China really to investors? Exactly how far down the road of liberalization does China stand today? And what should investors watch for next? To help me answer these questions, I'm joined by three of Fidelity's China experts. With me in Shanghai is Linda Zhou, a portfolio manager who's based in the city. Linda, you're based here, but how long have you known Shanghai? Um, I'm actually Shanghainese. I was born and brought up here, but I went to Hong Kong for study and, and further uh, work. And the last year, it's basically the open up of the China market bring me back. So I relocated the whole family back to Shanghai after almost 20 years. And joining us from Hong Kong, we have Brian Collins, a portfolio manager and head of our Asia fixed income team. So Brian, how much does China figure in your Asia portfolios? China is a significant part of our portfolios, directly and indirectly, but you could easily account for half of the exposures that we have and and growing, frankly. Um, And of course, indirectly, China has a significant influence on on Asia, less the rest of the world. And also in Hong Kong, we have George Eftastopoulos, a portfolio manager in the multi-asset team. So George, how close are you to the Chinese market? In recent years, we have found ourselves increasingly participating in China across the cap, the cap structure, whether it is China bonds, sort of CGBs, sort of the safer part of the cap structure, increasingly the past year or so in China, high yield, and more recently in Chinese equities as well. So particularly important for us in recent years. Thanks, George. And thank you all for joining me today. Uh, Linda, Fidelity's been in China for a decade and a half, and you know you can see that the Shanghai skyline has changed beyond all recognition in that time. But what about the country's financial markets? Where are we in that journey? Yeah, that's actually a very interesting question for now, because uh, we all know that China by far is still a relatively more close-up market. Um, you know, we have the capital account is still pretty much closed. Um, the financial market is just um, in the past two to three years, the, the open up happening. What is really encouraging is in, in the past one year, we do see that speed of open up uh, actually accelerated quite a lot. Probably that's because uh, it's one of the negotiation conditions of the trade war. But we're still very happy to see that process. And Brian and George, you are both very frequent visitors to China. But from your vantage point in Hong Kong, What's your take on the pace of change, Brian? I would say it's a little mixed. I mean, it's very rapid. I mean, I'm, I very much look at the domestic 
capital markets in China and see them as not developed, but rapidly developing. So in some respects, the rate of growth, the size of the market for one, has been impressive, immense. I mean, we've never seen this before in terms of the growth of a debt capital market or a capital market more generally. The good thing for China is that it's got large established developed markets around the rest of the world, which it can effectively uh, mirror or at least reflect or take the best of, if you will. We've seen some good improvements with the regulatory oversight, especially around the banking system and around uh, regulating shadow uh, banking, for example, and shadow financing channels over the last couple of years in particular. Yet on the other hand, there are some aspects, little things, which still have a long way to go. Uh, one of the obvious ones that are, we feel is significant for the onshore domestic bond markets is simply allowing greater use of really basic derivatives like bond futures, government bond futures, for example, which are available and they're used. But for example, as international participants, we're not yet able to use that as are some other participants. Now, we feel that that will change and will obviously continue to develop. And there's always this balance between making sure that the development of any capital market is uh, measured, it's controlled, it's not excessive or creating any kind of systemic risks. But on the other hand, given the size, the fact that the bond market's 13 odd trillion US dollars in size, we expect within the next five to six years, that number to be easily 30 trillion US dollars in size. That's as big as the US debt capital markets. So if you think about in size terms, they're going to equate each other very soon. But when you think about the depth and breadth and the sophistication of the two markets, China's well, well, well behind. So it's got lots of room and opportunity to continue to grow. And we're seeing that same sort of a development also in the terms of the A share market as well. When we think about sort of index uh, inclusion, uh, George, when I when I look at the the Chinese market, despite the sort of the development of it, the depth of it, liquidity of the market, the volatility of the market still gives me the impression that it's still a very immature or developing market. What's your perspective on that? It is a more retail driven market. So the retail investors also in China. They're responsible for roughly about 80% of trading sort of activity of turnover when they hold about 20% of the outstanding. These numbers are slowly changing with the inclusion that we saw. We are seeing a little bit of those dynamics change. It's still very early days. I think about 10% now of, um, of, of, of the outstanding sort of is, is, is held by, by foreign investors. So this will gradually change dynamics and will have a positive impact on volatility. But having said that, I'd also like to sort of to mention, you know, inclusion. Typically, what happens when a country gets included in, in an index, you tend to have the buy, buy the rumor, sell the fact. That's what happened with you know, UAE, Qatar, and even going back with you know, Taiwan and Korea sort of uh, many, many years ago. And this time around with China, it's been the exact opposite. We, you know, we, we, we knew there was going to be inclusion sometime sort of earlier this year. We didn't particularly know the, the extent of it. But last year, Despite decent earnings growth in China, we saw a huge, huge compression of multiples. So we didn't really see sort of this buying, buying the rumor, selling the fact that then created a very interesting buying opportunity on the back of very attractive valuations. 
after the uh, valuation compression of last year, uh, the market is definitely becoming more interesting. And last year, um, it was because, you know, we got a, a multiple surprises um, from both inside and outside. I think the outside one, um, the trade war one, is probably still going on. But inside-wise, the uh, financial market deleverage uh, is almost to come to the end. So it, it does look more interesting from now on. And let's stay with trade wars for a bit. Obviously, we're, we're in this environment now, tariffs being imposed by the US on China and the retaliation uh, that we're seeing. George, how serious is this and how much of an impact is it having on your asset allocation views as is your sort of thinking through the portfolio? Is this a short term uh, situation or something that you see kind of extending for for quarters ahead of us? Oh, trade wars. Um the key thing that we're monitoring uh, on, on trade was is what is the impact on the Chinese economy? And from our perspective, we've done a lot of work trying to understand from the bottom up, what does it really mean and the impact it has? And today versus 10, 15 years ago, the impact today is very, very different because today the Chinese economy has managed to transition from an export-driven economy to one that a big part of GDP growth is driven by the consumption story. So trade war 15 years ago would have had a much bigger impact than what it has um, today. I'd like to come in on currency, though, because I think, you know, one of the things that I found or fa- I'm finding particularly surprising was how weak the currency was as we went through 2018. But despite all of these headlines around trade wars, when you actually look at the currency. Yes, we've seen a little bit of weakness, but really it's been you know, more resilient maybe than one might have expected as we look through uh, 2019. Um, Brian, are you seeing value in the currency or do you feel that there's kind of further weakness to come? Yeah, the RMB is um, it's an evolving currency. It's a, for all intents and purposes, it's a managed trade weighted currency. And especially you can start to see how domestic monetary policy in China is playing a bigger role in the direction of the currency. So you mentioned that it was weak during 2018, which was the reverse of 2017 versus the US dollar because monetary policy growth trajectories were actually diverging. So that's what currencies should do. In 2018, the PBOC was easing monetary policy. The US Fed was actually starting to hike. Growth trajectories between the two were actually starting to diverge. The US was stronger. China was starting to moderate. So you should see a currency behave that way like a natural stabilizer. That's what they do. That's one of the great things about having a currency. But I want to bring out this 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 point on value, though. I want to bring out a point on value. I mean, Linda, when you look at the currency, do you see value? It's a tough question because uh, as, an, as an insider, you know, people are always trying to do diversification because we see the credit expansion speed, right? It's so much faster than your nominal GDP growth. That's why internal-wise, I think domestic people always have a, have, a, have a feeling, you know, fear of the currency depreciating. That's why they... They're willing to put the money into things like, uh, you know, um, properties um, or even hard liquors, you know, <laughs> but just not keep cash. So, <laughs> But in, in the context, George, of, of, of your portfolios, you can, you can be hedging out currency. Is it, are you hedging the currency at the moment? Um, we have been hedging the currency for the past month or so. I'd say roughly two weeks before sort of the trade war shenanigans came back to surface. And the reason for that is we sort of thought that the currency had gone a long way so far this year. It was pricing in a lot of good news. The hedging costs, as a result had 
come down quite significantly. Last year, hedging costs were about 35 to 4%, almost the entire coupon you'd be getting from the bonds. On the other hand, sort of a month ago or so, they had gone down to basis points. So from our end, pricing very good news and hedging costs very, very low. We thought that was a good opportunity to reduce some of our renminbi exposure. Yeah, the interest rate differentials have completely converged between the RMB and the US, um, between China and the US, excuse me. So those hedging costs are negligible now. I, I wouldn't say there's value in the currency only because there are downside risks. There are psychological uh, barriers, if you will, particularly for the domestic consumer and domestic confidence that seven is, is an issue. But frankly, it should be able to break through that. Uh, if China needs to be able to adjust to a relatively high level of of debt to GDP, if it needs to uh, use that as a tool within the trade war negotiations, maybe. But currencies need to go up and down to be a natural stabilizer. And the problem is with a closed capital account, with a with a managed currency, its ability to do that has both very strong pros and cons. Just turning to the economy more broadly, I mean, one of the things that international investors really struggle with, Linda, is actually trying to get a read on the Chinese economy. I mean, from inside the country, I mean, what's your view on where we are in the business cycle? How do you get a, a read on the on the economy? It's also not very easy even for a domestic um, person because the volatility in the GDP number, it's very, very low and to some extent doesn't really reflect you know, how the economy changes. So we do have some uh, um, better indicators, things like power generation, things like uh, discretional spending uh, on some of the key items. I think it's more kind of close to the reality type of parameters. And also I have uh, some personal channels. <laughs> yeah, I guess <laughs> I based in Shanghai, right? So I, I talk taxi um, through this shared car um, system twice a day. Um, so I get a So chance. you take taxis twice a day? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's actually quite uh, a good value for that because we still got a lot of internet giant subsidies on that shared car uh, service. So um, I talk to drivers twice a day. The interesting thing is these taxi drivers, they are not full-time taxi drivers. Uh, most of the time they have another job and quite some time they're actually SME owners, uh, you know, so at their leisure time they can just earn some additional money. SME, small small companies. Small, small, okay. Yeah, small, medium um, enterprise. They can give you really first-hand kind of information of what's happening on the ground. Like, for example, one of the driver I may remember last year, uh, he raised pigs. And then... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so you know, he told me it's very very tough last year, you know, in in its business, and he was thinking that he he, he may close down its business, and then you know switch to another one. So that's typically a signal of trough of the cycle of the of the pig market. <laughs> and how did you act on that? I mean, what did you do on the back of that information? Usually, that will give you some idea of, you know, when the kind of turning point. And then also uh, it gives you, you know, it's just give you an idea. So after that, I need to prove that. I talked to the uh, the really big scale pick raising companies to see if that's really, you know, close to the, the down cycle uh, of the market. I think that probably gives me some of the information earlier, you know, uh, quicker before I really picked up some news from, from you know, um, the, the Bloomberg or, you know, from a, a sales side report. So it's really kind of firsthand information. You know, one of the things that I'm really interested in at the moment is really the role that kind of monetary policy is playing. And uh, I mean, Brian, I don't know how effective you think the Chinese authorities have been in terms of their 
use of, of, of monetary policy to manage the economy? Should the, the, the folks at the sort of People's Bank of China, should they be talking to sort of the pig farmers as well? For what it's worth, I'm certain they are because that's an important component of inflation. It's a food in particular is a big part of the consumer price index and it's just a big part of the disposable income. And I think what we've noticed with the PBOC is that their monetary policy framework, their formalized open market operations have really stepped up quite meaningfully in the last couple of years from officially from November of 2015. So monetary policy is now becoming a much better tool and you can monitor that through, again, the formal open market operations. You can look at it with short-end funding costs. So this is actually a much better indicator, we would say, of what the central bank is actually doing rather than just what they're saying. And so you can actually start to see over the last couple of years that tightening of monetary policy, the easing of monetary policy over 2017 and 18 respectively were very clear to see. And that helped us with our positioning. It helped us get conviction. It helped us to add risk at the end of last year. And the other thing that I think is very relevant to that, it's, it's all very interconnected, as you can imagine, is obviously the currency and interest rate differentials. We talked about that before. But then it's even just looking at the credit uh, sort of impulse, the, that that credit growth within the within the economy. This is critical in assessing and evaluating the cycles and the mini cycles that we see within China, all very related to each other. Because monetary policy is not just credit growth. We also need to add things like fiscal impulse or local government spending, for example. And it, and if we sort of turn to sort of macro prudential measures more broadly, I mean, George, again, you know, to, to sort of ask the same question, you know, I, I look at you know, despite lots of different uh, economies and governments talking about macroprudential measures, you could argue actually that China's been one of the most effective at using macroprudential measures to control the economy. Am I, am I right in thinking that? Well, last year we have had the deleveraging campaign and you know, that has been working, but at the same time, it has also had some unintended consequences. And actually that links up very much to, to what sort of Brian talked about, you know, the credit cycle and the credit sort of the credit impulse. What happened last year was that companies that needed liquidity, that needed credit flow the most, these are sort of private companies, you know, small and medium-sized enterprises, these companies did not have access anymore to lending. And as a result, we started seeing an increase of default, sort of more, more spread volatility in the onshore bond market. And that's important because small and medium-sized enterprises in China, you know, private companies in China, they make up a big part of China's employment, about 70 to 80% of urban employment. And if we think of you know, China and you know, the political spectrum in China, the key the key sort of objective here is, I would say, social stability. How we can relate that to the economy, something more tangible that we can monitor, um, I would argue that that is employment, essentially not seeing unemployment rising. If private companies are having issues, and not issues because they've been poorly managed, but issues because they're not finding access to liquidity, then that is a bad thing because it can lead to rising unemployment. Now, that was identified you know, as an unintended consequence by the market, by the, by the PBOC, middle of last year. They started stepping up on that front. And as a result, we, that's from our perspective, that was a catalyst to start adding to risk, especially in Chinese corporates. 
Yeah, and the macro prudential policy that we've also seen, which I think is a little bit mixed, but I think you're right, Paris, it's, it's been a pretty good example of, of, of how it can work. It's certainly at scale, that's for sure. Clearly, we've seen over many years quite extensive policy controls around the property market, around lending standards. That's actually created some distortions, frankly. It's um, a mixed result, if you will. The other macro prudential policy, it's um, probably torturing and stretching the term, the definition a little bit. It's just really been about the cost of funding. So the overall cost of funding, the allocation of capital within the economy has been very heavily skewed towards state-owned enterprise. And with good cause, through decades of rapid development, this is a necessary, uh, very valid way to create capital, to generate fixed asset investment, infrastructure, and everything that goes with it. The problem, however, is over time, if the cost of capital is not priced correctly, you then get a misallocation of capital. And one of the nice things that we see about the development of a domestic bond market is that it starts the process of pricing capital better. And when you price capital better, you get a much higher chance of that capital being allocated more efficiently. Um, It's not perfect. It just means that good quality companies get rewarded with a lower cost of funding and vice versa. It's a work in progress. The bond market helps you do that. Um, But that's, I would argue, the number one financial market reform for China, the efficient pricing and allocation of capital. And the bond market helps with that, but there's still a lot more to be done. And and, and not just the bond market, also the inclusion of China into the sort of the Barclays indices, et cetera, which will slowly find international institutional investors um, coming into the market and, again, helping with pricing that risk more efficiently. Just on that um, uh, misallocation of capital point, at this time around of easing, I got a very different feeling because, you know, from the recent, like the April, the PBOC monthly commentary, you already feel that they started to tighten a little bit after, you know, the first quarter of very big scale of easing. So so this time around, that their mentality is very different. You know, they, want, they just want to control the liquidity enough to support economy, not collapse, but they don't want to, to really pump the, uh, the system with abandoned liquidity and, and create a lot of bubbles or, or you know, in another, in another word, allocate capital in a very inefficient way. So, so I think it's also kind of maternity and uh, attitude change uh, towards the easing. And, and definitely that brings more credit financing to direct uh, equity financing or bond financing. And Brian, you mentioned property, and traditionally properties where up to 70% of Chinese household wealth is tied up. And my colleague Richard Edgar has hit the streets in Shanghai to see what's happening in the property market and what that could actually mean for the broader economy. Paris, I'm in downtown Shanghai, the centre of the Pudong Business District. In fact, just outside our offices, you can probably wave and I'd see you. But I'm about to go on a ramble to see some rather different areas, different neighbourhoods, and the story they tell about China's economy today. And my guide is Alex Zhang, Fidelity's real estate analyst here in China. Alex, welcome to you. Welcome to Shanghai. Thank you very much. Now, what an exciting time to be covering real estate. Um, I know that you think that Shanghai is a little bit like China in miniature, if you could call a city like this of 26 million people in any way mini. But tell me about the development here in this business district. What, what are we looking at right now? Sure. We are now standing in the very center of Lu Jiazui financial town. And there are around 40 buildings in this area. 
Uh, and in those buildings, we have over 200,000 people working for the financial industry. And 30 years ago, what was here? Fields and some very uh, shabby uh, neighborhood. And when the Chinese government decided to develop Pudong area as the starting point of the opening up, and uh, we start to see a lot of buildings. Some of them are, were built in the 1990s, but also some of them are, were built in the 2010. So this is possibly the, the, the scene that most people think of when they, they uh, most foreigners certainly think of with uh, Shanghai. But um, you're going to take me to a rather different place. Yes, of course. Uh, for the residential community in this Lujiazui area, uh, there are two camps. One is about five to ten minutes walk from our office, and the other is around twenty minutes walk from our office. And uh, I'm actually living in the, 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 the twenty minutes camp. Well, it sounds like we've got some exercise to uh, to get on with. Let, let, yeah. Why don't you lead on? Yeah, of course. Right, Alex, not, not an awful lot of uh, exercise. We've only been walking probably about, I don't know, seven or eight minutes. And here we are in the area that you were telling me about. Um, much more residential. It's leafy. We've got lots of trees down this, uh, this street. Very attractive and helpful on a very sunny uh, day here in Shanghai. Tell me about the, the shops that we can see around. Uh, as you can see, the most popular are property agents, restaurants, coffee bars, juice bars. And I think all of these represent the fast-growing service industry in China. So definitely it's a structural trend. However, we can also see all of these tenants, the turnover rate is very high. The turnover rate? Yeah, or the churn rate, yeah. so which means some, uh, a lot of people are trying to open their own shops. However, some people succeed to, to survive, but some people just uh, have to close down uh, just after maybe the, 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 the tenant lease period. So th this is your neighborhood, you walk up and down this street every day. How often do you see new shops here? Uh, I have to say very often, actually, in front of us, these three shops, I didn't, didn't find them during the last weekend. Really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're brand new. Yeah. And, and how, long, how long do you think they'll last? Um, well, it depends. I think the property agents probably could last quite a period because uh, they are the, uh, the expert about the demand. And these dumpling shops, uh, I think they mainly serve the mid to low end customers can actually also survive quite a lot, lot of time. But this one, which is a stewed meat kind of shops, um, it's quite a specific demand. So I'm not quite sure how long they can survive. So dumplings, <laughs> yes, stewed meat, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. And how important is property as an investment to people here in Shanghai? The property price went up about 30% in 2015 and another 30% in 2016. But after the two years of skyrocketing, the Chinese government came in with intervention to curb the property bubble in late 2017. So we then see 15% uh, drop from the peak, and uh, which bottomed February this year, and edge up for 6% since and it's then. Been, it's, oh, edging up 6%. I mean, that's, that's a yeah. pretty good edging up, isn't it? Yeah. Um, has that government intervention and the slowing of the incredible um, racing away of, of prices, um, has that changed the way that people think about property? Well, definitely the property has become less attractive as an investment. And uh, this is something close to your heart as well, yes. not, not just professionally. Yeah, because I bought my apartment in this area uh, in early 2016. So I enjoyed the rally in 2016. 
However, I also experienced a drop in 2017 and 18. But uh, definitely, I don't view that as a, from an investment angle. I more treat it as a living purpose. Uh, I think the one of the purpose for government to control the property bubble is also prevent the property to crowding out too much consumption. So I think there will definitely be a structural trend for the Chinese household to allocate their assets out of property and gradually into other type of assets like equity, fixed income, and other type of things. And also on the other hand, you have more um, disposable income be allocated to consumption. So that's definitely both good for the capital market and consumption for the next decades. Well, Alex showing me here on the leafy streets of uh, almost central Shanghai. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Lindra, I want to explore this point that Alex raised on consumer trends a bit more. Does, does what he said really chime with your own outlook? I, I think it's quite common to think in that way. Um, but from my kind of experience, I, I, I actually do feel the opposite way. I think that, you know, you have your property prices rising. It actually creates a lot of wealth effect and increase your, first of all, increase your consumption power. And second, it's also increase your expectation for the future growth. So I do think that wealth effect takes a big part you know, from the property price. Um, it's, you know, probably quite good for the for the consumption and also you know i do experienced a very big drop in hong kong property price back into 1997 when the property price dropped to 70 percent so that's definitely going to decrease your consumption not increase one of the things that i've discovered sort of meeting chinese companies over, over the last year is that it seems as if local brands are starting to resonate with consumers, arguably more than international brands. And we're, we're very used to this idea that uh, uh, international brands like Nike have global resonance. But, but what's really surprised me is the prominence and growth and appetite for local brands. Is this, is this a, sh a real shift that we're seeing? Yeah, it is a very strong phenomenon emerging um, in, in the past decade. I think there are two reasons behind that. First, the one is you have the local brands is really have their quality improved uh, in terms of value for money. It can give you better utility. So there's fundamental reasons why, you know, the local brands in emerging. And second, also from the consumer perspective, well, we got a young generation. Their consumption pattern is really, really different from, you know, my generation. Um, they're very, they're very focused on, on tailor-made demand uh, and also very focused on experience. And also they quite focus on a kind of um, interaction of feedback. So that's sometimes, you know, the local brands, they're really good at, you know, they're very fast and changing their models, their designs to better um, tailoring the, the younger generation customers. Whereas international brands, for example, it's a very typical example is like P&G, when they want to launch a new product and trying to fit into the younger generation, they need terms of process approval from their US-based uh, R&D center. But the local cosmetics or, or, or FMCG brands, they're changing really, really fast. One of the emerging stories really, though, is about increasing household leverage. Uh, on the credit side, Brian, is, is, is increasing household borrowing a concern for you? The level of household debt is always something we need to be thinking about in any economy, uh, particularly around the rate of change. 
someone's property or properties, plural, as is often the case within China, uh, and the mortgage associated to that is, is typically the largest part of that household debt. That wealth effect and everything that we've talked about is obviously an important part of that. The good thing is, generally speaking, we don't see excessive levels of debt in the household sector other than the uh, investors. And even then, it's been difficult to have excessive amounts of debt within the household sector. But as we start to think about things like auto leasing, for example, if we start to think about the the use of consumer credit, this is a much trickier part of the household debt problem because usually it's a higher cost of funding. It's usually brings forward consumption. And and of course, it's harder for that to sustain uh, rapid growth. And that actually is what brings about cyclicality within more developed economies like the US, for example, which is very much domestic driven with with a large amount of uh, domestic credit focus and household debt focus. I mean, the development of China credit scoring systems or social scoring systems is clearly a way to try and rein in and self-regulate, if you will. But I guess I'm not concerned about household leverage at this point of stage, but my goodness, it's it's increased quite significantly over the last few years. So it's definitely something we need to be watching and mindful of. One more thing to link up to that is you know, monitoring household leverage levels, but simultaneously monitoring savings rates levels, which historically and continues to be one of the highest globally. If that starts deteriorating at a time when household leverage is moving upwards, that would be a more worrying dynamic. Haven't really seen that yet happening in any meaningful way. I agree with um, Brian. It does rise very, very quickly, but my feeling is that it's still pretty much links to the mortgage. So mortgage debt is still so far the largest part uh, of the uh, household uh, leverage. So again, you know, it links back to the question of property price. My view is property price is going to be stable, not collapsing. And as long as it's the case, I don't think it's a mortgage type of um, household leverage is going to be a big problem. Well, that's, that's a really helpful insight. If I wanted to bring this all together, I mean, what we've really learned today is that the Chinese market, the capital markets are, you know, continuing their process of, of opening up. But really, we've seen the pace really accelerate over, over the last 12 months. I'm also really interested to hear that, you know, our view on the management of the economies by the Chinese authorities we're giving a lot of credibility for both the efficacy of monetary policy as well as the, the, the macro prudential measures. And that whilst we're seeing a maturing uh, real estate cycle and potentially a kind of a more mixed outlook for real estate, that in fact, the, uh, the consumption story continues uh, apace. And of course, we'll be keeping a very close eye on pigs. That brings us to the end of our show today. I'd like to thank my guests, Linda and Alex in Shanghai and Brian and George in Hong Kong. The producers were Richard Edgar in Shanghai and Neil Goff and Seb Morton Clark in Hong Kong. If you like what you've heard today, do subscribe, rate and review us on your podcast app. Until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.